Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good tidings, dear listeners, and welcome to another edition of Credit Crunch, part of the Fick Focus podcast series. I am your host, Noel Hebert, and joining me is U.S. Credit Strategy colleague, Sam Geyer. Uh, before we get going, a little public service announcement. If you're a new or regular listener and like what we're doing here at Fit Focus, please take a moment to follow, comment, and share, as that helps us to keep bringing you great guests. So, listen, very interesting conversation ahead for listeners today. Trust preferred CLOs, benefits of reinsurance, and the alternatives platform uh, we're going to hit on those topics and a lot more with Brett Jefferson, president and founder of Hildeen Capital Management, and who, alongside Duchamp Mirror, hosts CIO duties. Hildeen is about a $14 billion diversified institutional asset manager, uh, and they're focused largely on asset-based and credit opportunities. So, Brett Duchamp, first of all, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So, Brett, let's maybe start with the timeline, lay a little foundation for the conversation today. Uh, you, you founded Hildeen in the fantastic year of 2008 uh, with a relatively niche focus. So I guess maybe walk us through, you know, what led you to that point in terms of what did your career look like? And then given the, the timing of it all, what sort of gave you the confidence to sort of go out on your own and, and start Hildeen? Sure. Um, I wouldn't say it started as a niche focus, but it ended up as a niche focus is probably a better way to look at it. And, um, you know, my, my first career uh, was in Chicago after I got out of college and I worked on the floor. I was uh, worked for a couple option arbitrage companies and I started to realize, you know, to do this, you really have to process things really, really quickly. Not really, it's not really difficult stuff, even though some of the concepts could be, but just wasn't for me. And I started to see everything else going the computer route. So I decided to go get my MBA. I got my MBA at Northwestern Kellogg School. And afterwards, I was in a training program, and this was in 1996. And as everybody got out of the training program, they grabbed me and they said, there's this new product called CBOs, and we would like you to lead the effort. And I had to ask them what a CBO was. And they said, well, we're going to start to securitize assets with a credit component, such as high-yield bonds. So for the next six years, off I went, and I structured CBOs, CLOs, CDOs, um, built these different securitizations. Not going to tell you I really loved it, um, but it was a job. But I really liked figuring out new concepts within it. And in 2002, I was approached by a gentleman whose name was Bruce Richards. He ran a firm called Marathon Asset Management. At that time, they were a billion dollars. And he had heard that there were going to be good opportunities investing in this product. And he asked me if he thought I could do it. And since I wasn't crazy about I was what, I, what I was doing, I said, of course I could do it. And I realized about a week into uh, this new job that the only way I was ever going to be allowed to do anything or actually survive there was I had to teach the two principles exactly what I was doing. And with that, I had to make it into a simplistic way where I could show them where value was. And it's where there I created a methodology, which I started to break down the three different components which are in all securitizations. And we call it the value of the assets, the value of the structure, and the value of the option. And I started to show them that the way people were looking at it um, wasn't necessarily in the best way and that they really were not taking into account all the value that was trapped within these deals and the optionality and that we should be buying the junior part of the capital structure. 
And I convinced one of them and he said, yes. And off we went and bought as much of them as we humanly possibly could. And these were known as picking bonds, bonds which were trading for cents in the dollar. And they all worked out really well. And I did very well there. Um, Mr. Richards had different visions of what he wanted me to do and didn't work out and we broke up. And, and that was in 2006. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I decided to take a couple of years off, figure out what I wanted to do. I then got married and I got married at a place called Hildeen. And I shortly there realized that my in-laws <laughs> saw this guy who had, you know, a couple houses, nice cars. They're very simple people. And I think they thought I was a drug dealer. So um, I had to go find a job and I spoke to a few people and I realized I don't really want to work for anyone. I wasn't good at the big political game with the banks. I really don't want to go work for somebody else who's going to change their mind on me. I'm just going to do this myself. I went and I told my new wife that I was going to do this. She said, great. So I started to go through a list of things I had to do. And as I said, all right, I got to name this thing. I looked over, I saw my wedding invitation, said Hildy. I said, Hildy, that's a good name. So we'll name it Hildy. Um, we, I did some research on the name, mm -hmm. by the way. I, I know you're going to be thrilled to know this. Apparently, it's like an old English for hills and stream. Oh, uh, yeah. There's some other meanings yeah. for it, but, uh, but I thought I was like, I wonder where it came from. But that's that's a much better story than mine. Yeah, no, it was actually um, Abraham Lincoln loved Vermont. As you know, he mm -hmm. had four sons. Three of them died tragically. And after he was going to retire to Vermont, after he got out of office, obviously he didn't get out of office. Um, his solely surviving son, Robert Todd Lincoln, uh, created this estate called Hildeen. And, uh, you know, it was run down for a while. They fixed it up, and now they have a lot of weddings there. So. <laughs> Including yours. Including so, uh, so, so much better than the drug dealing. Right? Yeah. So yes. I, I do want to fast forward maybe here to 2016. And, and uh, Deshaun, let's bring you in here because this is where you jump in. Uh, and you really start to bring uh, some diversity to the to the business. So. You know, first, maybe, Brett, given the success that you were able to have early uh, uh, in the first years of Hildeen, right, why diversify? And then Deshant uh, would love to get you to sort of maybe walk through some of the growth uh, that you've brought into the firm in terms of the new, you know, the new areas of interest. Um, so I guess you want me to. So, yeah, from we started the firm and we were looking at what are the best opportunities in distress structured credit? We just said, let's go out and do it. Let's go out and see if we can raise money. I was the first investor in the fund. And then one day I started looking at bank and insurance trust preferred CDOs. And they reminded me exactly of when I started looking at CBOs and CLOs in 2002. And for many different reasons, the size of the market, the players who really didn't have the knowledge, but also the barriers to entry were something that could be achievable. And I just found this to be the most compelling product, one, because of the lack of information that people didn't have, but they also, they were too lazy to go get. And then the other was because of an accounting feature in there, because a trust preferred um, is a fixed income product, which can defer. And when it does defer, it gets written off like a defaulted asset, but it can come back and get written back up. And we started to realize that all these banks aren't going to fail. Um, so we really started to focus the first fund on that. We then created another fund in 2011 that focused on CLOs and, and really TARP auctions that were going on at that time. But I, I think what's more important is, is that we were a, we'll call it a, a, a much simpler firm. And I don't mean that Duchamp adds complexity, even though he does, but we were a much simpler firm because it's sort of like everything funneled through Brett. You know, Brett made the decisions. Brett 
decided on the trades. I'm not saying there weren't other people there, but I didn't have someone who really came in and would sit down with me and say, we need to invest in technology or we need to focus on this new asset class. So when we got to 2016, it actually was interesting. We had a great year in 2015. I paid two gentlemen very, very well, and they decided to retire at the age of 35. And I think that's why Deshaun wanted to join because he heard about their retirement. But also, you know, it made me realize that either I go retire, which my wife told me I wasn't allowed to do, um, or I go and take this and push it in a direction which we should go. So I spoke to a lot of people and Dushant came in and really had a great vision. But I would say that we've always been involved in structured products, but what Dushant has done is made it into a much more systematic approach to the way that we approach all products and the complexities of them. Okay, so let's not steal too much of his thunder here. Let's let him come in and, you know, walk us through. So, so speak to some of that complexity, uh, Dushan, if you could. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Noel. Uh, so my background, uh, just to get into that a little bit, is very similar to Brett in the sense that I started out on a structuring desk, um, structuring CDOs of ABS securities. Uh, back from 2005 to 2008. Um, and it was a new asset class, and we had to figure out how some of these cash flows are going to work. Uh, and that led to uh, an investment-focused job at Lone Star Funds uh, from, for a couple of years, after which I joined Find River Capital uh, as a structured products portfolio manager and focused on uh, you know, background was ABS and residential mortgage-backed securities, but then also focused on uh, CLOs while I was at Pine River. Um, and so, Brett and my overlap was structuring as well as CLOs uh, and CDO investing. And so, when I started at Hildeen, I don't think the idea ever was that we will necessarily diversify. Uh, Brett was looking uh, for a new partner and uh, with a focus on structured credit. Uh, and there was clearly overlaps. Uh, and so, and he had set up a great platform. Uh, his returns have been phenomenal. Um, and we were looking at new opportunities at that point. Uh, early opportunities in 2016, to be candid, uh, revolved uh, around CLOs. And Brett had done that really well in addition to Trump CDOs since 2010. Uh, and so we just picked that up and scaled that up uh, to the best we could. Uh, and that eventually led to uh, you know, our ability to diversify into other products like ABS and RMBS, which I already had a background of doing. Uh, when you get into those other products, a lot of them become very data intensive. So technology becomes essential, uh, which led us to start building uh, not just data sets, but also uh, statistical tools to study those data sets uh, and build models around it. Uh, and then as you diversify away from you know, one or two asset classes into multiple, uh, I really like this whole idea that Brett had uh, instituted at the firm where you look at the value of the asset, the value of the structure, and the value of the option. Now, in a sense, every structured product trader would tell you that he does that once he hears it. But to break it down like that was was interesting 
and give us a systematic way of thinking about the world, which then we replicated as we built the technology and the infrastructure and the systematic approach to investing in each of these asset classes. So, so staying on the topic of, of growth for Hildeen, I'm curious for you guys, what are, what are you looking for in terms of skills, uh, skill sets for people that you hire? And I mean, Deshaun, you also just touched on like the technology side of things. What are you guys looking for uh, on your end when you're growing and you're, you're growing as much as you guys have? Uh, sure. Um, so, you know, we are generally looking for generalists who have touched upon various aspects of structured products in general. So it's structuring or trading. Uh, but every, all these asset classes that we talked about, ABS, RMBS, CLO, CDOs, are similar, but then have different aspects to them, right? And having a flavor of at least two or three is ideal uh, to the investment mindset. Uh, plus, we do like a, struct a structuring background. Uh, there is the, if you have figured out how these cash flows work and how the waterfalls of these structures work at the onset of your career, I think investing uh, in those cash flows becomes a lot easier. Right. Gotcha. I think I think to add on to that, we look we look on a, on a more of a qualitative uh, matter. We have one PL for the firm, and that's very different than a lot of other firms who come in and say, you go do this and you get paid this and you go do this. And we do that for two reasons. And we do that. The first reason is, is that if you look at some of the most spectacular blow ups in the history of money, they usually have come where somebody gets overly aggressive because there's nothing for them to do. And the next is, is that in all the different products or new ventures that we do, they require a lot of R&D. They require a lot of research and development. You can do that in two ways, one of two ways. You can do it internally by just taking people and doing it, or you can go hire someone who's going to realize that that could be their future job and they're going to do everything in their power to convince you that it's the right thing to do. So we look for people who understand that concept. I'm not going to tell you that everyone always has. The other thing that I look at is I played the cross in college and I went off and played at one of the best teams there was and I was a goalie, but I never was a starter. I was a backup goalie. And the backup goalie taught me that whatever job you're given, that's your job, and you better do it to the best of your ability. So I always give everybody the backup goalie test. I say, what happens if you're the backup? Are you going to accept this job, or are you going to moan and not play nice in the sandbox? And those are the two tests that I always do when I'm looking for people that we're going to hire. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I, I definitely relate to the the sports side of things. I was on the ten, in the tennis world on my end, but... I guess getting back to the... Did you just bring up tennis yeah. after he talked about lacrosse? Come on, Sam. You, you should play Deshaun. He was, he was pretty good back in the day. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to get it going. <laughs> um, but but turning back to the topic of uh, relative value, Deshaun, you were mentioning all the different asset classes that you guys operate in now. How do you guys go about you know identifying relative value within those specific asset classes and, and even across asset classes when you're dealing with you know, so many different structures. Uh, sure. Um, I mean, so it comes back to the three pillars of what we talked about, asset structure and option, right? And on when you think about asset, that's a high level overview on what the asset is. Do we fundamentally believe residential credit is at a stable footing versus corporate credit? Uh, if we do, how do we value 
residential versus structure? How do we value, how do we predict uh, forward-looking prepayments or defaults in either of these asset classes? So that's at a very high level, how do you pick the asset? Uh, and then you get into more details of how do you, you know, within the asset class, what part of the capital structure do you pick? Uh, you know, do you buy mezzanine bonds or do you buy equity? Uh, we have this uh, thesis that within any structured product, because of the waterfall, excess spread is created. And that excess spread benefits uh, one tranche or the other. And the alpha typically comes from the tranche that is the falcon tranche or the tranche that is benefiting the most from that excess spread, right? And so typically that's what we are most focused on. But from time to time, there could be other nuances in the structure that make us focus on other parts of the capital structure. Uh, like, for example, distress back in 2008 and 2009 when uh, the senior most parts of all these products were trading at cents on the dollar, including, for example, truck CDOs. Uh, and then lastly, is, is comes down to QCIP selection, right? QCIP selection is all about picking the right options. Uh, you know, in the purest form, the option is how do you break the structure? And structure can be broken in good times because the equity has the option to call the deal and realize the intrinsic value within the collateral of structured products. Or when times are bad, uh, the senior most tranches have that option to break the structure and preserve value for themselves. But then there's other types of options when you think about uh, CLOs, for example, right? They're, a CLO is managed by an active manager. What kind of optionality does his trading or management ability bring to the CLO? Uh, and, and others like that. So uh, between those three pillars, we try to evaluate the opportunity set and then go with the best opportunity at any given time. So I, I, I just want to jump in there. I mean, because it's really interesting because you, you talk in it and it can kind of go almost qualitative or quantitative. So I'm curious when you're starting to do sort of that fulcrum security analysis within the waterfall or then even saying, okay, here's where we want to be in the structure, then maybe drilling down to the QCIP level. Like, I guess I'm trying to understand, do, do you have like uh, automation tools that sort of flag saying, hey, listen, this is where we think these are. Or is that is that a human thing or, or is that a little bit of a combo platter of the two? It's, it is a human thing. Um, look, I went to a financial engineering program at Columbia, and candidly, that was my first exposure to anything finance or uh, financial engineering. And uh, the dean of our program uh, was Emmanuel Derman from the Black Derman Toy Model. And I still remember one of the greatest lessons he ever taught us was the model is as good as the guy who created it and the guy who uses it. Right? So, we don't depend on models to make trading decisions or risk decisions. We use them as a tool, uh, but that's not the be all and end all. So, you know, to, to answer your question more directly, Noel, we have models that identify opportunities for us, but more importantly, uh, they identify opportunities based on the inputs that we provide and the outputs that they give out have to be interpreted the right way. Right. And so model is just a tool. So I want to maybe Brett bring you back in here. So when we had talked earlier, you'd mentioned that you need to be proactive to be reactive, right? As sort of an investment philosophy. So I guess, you know, 
in lieu of, of thinking about the relative value piece, I guess maybe frame that out for me in terms of what that means for you in terms of actually executing within the portfolio. Yeah, sure. I mean, this started when I when I was back at Marathon and you know, back then the market was so we'll call it primitive. Somebody would show you something, you could literally say, I'll be back to you in three days. And then I started to realize that there, as it got more competitive, as I could understand and have every single deal modeled up, the quicker that I could turn something around, that would be to my advantage. So when we look at something like trust preferred CDOs, we model every deal. We take all that information. And really, when Dushan came in, in the CLO space, you know, he brought in Jutton Dalawala, who builds things now that just I'm in awe. I mean, he builds infrastructure where we get downloads every single day, but we have every CLO. In the mortgage space, we have all that information. And where and the reason why that's different is, is if if you're buying corporate credit or you're buying better examples, if you're buying stocks and you want to buy Apple and you go out and you try and buy it, you can buy it up a quarter point. And that's like shopping at the mall. What we do is like shopping at the Turkish Bazaar. We show up with money and we walk around <laughs> and we look for things. And now all of a sudden we look over and we're like, yeah, I'm going to the shop. Look at that vase. That thing's valuable and nobody understands it. So you have to be able to react. You have to be first. Because if you buy something, if something comes out for sale, let's just say 50 cents in the dollar, it's $5 million of a $20 million tranche. You can't go out and say, I'm going to pay 52 for the other 15 because they just may not come out. So, so much of what we are doing is reacting. What also we're doing is, is we partner very well. And I think it's, it's something I've always learned is, is that, you know, people who trade on the street, and Dushant does this exceptionally well, they are in the business of, yes, moving product, but they're also in the business of making money. So to have a partner that can bring them opportunities or somebody that will share information, these are all things that most other products they don't do. But when there's something good and we can share that information, that works out really well. We're actually doing a trade right now where we're dealing with two banks and it's something which no one could ever think you could do because it's about taking advantage of the value of the option, but you need every single tranche to vote. And there are tranches which are worthless, which would never vote. But over time, we figured out that we acquire these and now we're actually going out and we're finding these other ones and it's going to be a very big trade. Can't tell you what it is because it's going to happen in a couple of weeks. But <laughs> yes, yeah. compliance would appreciate that. Today. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I won't. <laughs> so, so I maybe want to come back. I, I guess I'm a little stuck on the Turkish Bazaar just because of my one experience there many, many years ago. But um, I, I maybe want to dig in uh, before we dig into a lot of that because there's a lot there to I think unpack that is really fascinating. But maybe just sticking on. Uh, CLOs first is sort of uh, maybe an anchor tenant, if you will, of sort of the investment portfolio uh, and, and how you go about number one, sort of identifying opportunities in that space or even RMBS for that matter. And then maybe give me a sense of like, I think a lot of the commentary that we see in the marketplace these days is really about sort of uh, the resiliency of, of CLOs, particularly the, the 2.0 version plus, right? Uh, so I guess, you know, I'd be curious as well in terms of what your sense is, is, is that sort of a, just a reflection of the time or are these structures truly, uh, you know, just one of those rare assets that kind of maybe offers a better than risk adjusted return? Yeah, if I, I can just talk on that really quickly. You know, back when CBOs were first created, the entire high yield market, I went to the entire, 40% of the high yield market was in telecom. And we all know how that worked out. 
So when you could go look at a, a CBO or a CLO, they were had way, way over concentrations of telecom, and that's why they had problems. Where I think CLOs have gotten better is, is that these larger players, you know, really are looking at credits and kind of saying, no, I, I don't care if you want to bring that deal to market. It's not going in into our system. So I would say on a credit standpoint, that's that's a bigger aspect of it. I think in the next, next aspect of it is so many of these very large firms, very large firms such as Apollo, Carlisle, Blackstone have CLO platforms, but they also are involved in every other aspect of the high yield, non-investment grade market. So if there is a problem within the credit, they're usually there to help bail it out. And that's where we've seen a lot more of it with the recoveries. I'm not saying all of them, but we've seen more of them. And I think just in the mortgage space, and I'm just going to touch on it a second and hand it over to Dushan. You know, we're involved with non-QM mortgages. These are not subprime. These are 70 loan to value, and they are usually people who are self-employed. And I can tell you this, that when is the best time to invest in mortgages? After the largest mortgage crisis that we've ever had, because the amount of regulation, scrutiny, hurdles you have to jump through have made it where we're buying products where we think that, you know, on a risk adjusted basis and on a spread basis, we're being compensated very, very well. Dushant, you want to add a lot to that? Because I know I didn't touch on that much. <laughs> yeah. And I know Dushant, we had talked prior as well about, you had mentioned sort of the importance about identifying the right managers in the CLO space as well. So. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd, I'd say a couple of things. So, you know, to answer your question about what are we looking for and how do we identify opportunities? We're like a typical hedge fund. We are looking for an asymmetric payoff, right? And what I mean by that is we're looking for uh, option adjusted returns that beat expectations. So uh, having said that, and I'll cover mortgages in a second, just to get back to CLOs. Look, the CLO market, obviously has been in existence for probably 25 years at this point, but has grown dramatically over the last six or seven and has had many changes. And there's goods and bads that come with it. Uh, the structure has evolved since the great financial crisis and has become more stable, less esoteric in nature, so easier to evaluate, which clearly attracts more institutional capital. Uh, there is a lot more CLO managers today than there were 10 years ago. And so uh, it's critical to evaluate styles uh, for each manager. And there are various different styles and incentives uh, that you have to evaluate. Uh, but having said that, we have not gone through a high yield crisis in a long, long time. And so, you know, I am cautious to make statements that the triple B and the double B tranches of CLOs have never taken a loss. So that means they will never again take a loss in the future. Uh, and, and instead, uh, what, how we like to look at the world is first evaluate if loss adjusted, the asset class makes sense. And what I can tell you today, or at least three months ago, is CLOs were pricing in a massive recession. And so loss on a loss adjusted basis, they looked like giving us an asymmetric profile. Uh, what I can also tell you is that a lot of capital that has flown into the space over the last six or seven years, really since 2016, which was the advent of risk retention in the CLO market, which again today is not existent anymore, but 
uh, that attracted, started attracting a lot of uh, institutional capital to the space. Uh, a lot of that capital is rules-based. So when I say rules-based, what I mean is they, they will tell you that you can only look at 20 different managers out of the 150-odd managers that issue deals. Or they will tell you you can only look at triple B and double B tranches. Or they'll tell you you can only look at secondary versus primary. And when you have rules-based investing um, from a majority of the capital chasing the asset class, it creates a lot of relative value opportunities. Uh, and so what we see in the CLO market today is the relative value lens has gone missing and you can pick up the gaps left behind and create value for your investors, right? And that's, that's, that's on the CLO asset class. And residential is clearly different, much more efficient market, but non-QM, uh, which we are most focused on today, is, is an asset class that is less trafficked, slowly but steadily getting uh, rid of the stigma of subprime. Non-QM by no means is subprime from 2008, and slowly but steadily attracting more and more institutional capital. Uh, and uh, we've, we've, over the last two years, given the volatility in rates, we've seen a, a very interesting opportunity set about that. Yeah, I guess that's sort of like an interesting point, and, and, I, and I kind of, I guess I get a multi-layered question here. I guess, firstly, what do you make of, of the current backdrop, right? I mean, because 7% mortgages, you're talking about housing, particularly on the residential side, being as expensive as it's been in 30 or 40 years, certainly relative to like per capita income. Is that good or bad uh, for the asset class? And then I guess maybe to, to take it back a little bit more macro, because Brett, you sort of touched on this in your response, is you know, talking about sort of post uh, the mortgage crisis, et cetera, being a great opportunity. You know, is there, you know, kind of across the different assets that you guys touch on, is there a market environment that gets you particularly excited? I mean, a lot of people in credit obviously get excited when distress hits because typically means, you know, babies go out with the bathwater. Um, but, but I'm just kind of curious in terms of how you look at the market backdrop. Yeah, um, so quickly covering uh, the, the mortgage and housing landscapes. Look, we are, excited about the housing market in general because the supply demand dynamic in housing is is not an imbalance. And uh, so rates are clearly high and mortgage creation might slow down, uh, primarily because refis uh, are not in the money today. Uh, but, you know, if you took out a mortgage five years ago and, and put down 20, 25, uh, points when you took out bought the house, uh, your LTV on that loan today is around 40 or 50, uh, given the HPA that has happened. Uh, we like that credit, right? And more importantly, the underwriting is nowhere close to the standards that, uh, you know, you read about back in prior to 2008, right? These are not, these are income verified, bank statement tested, uh, appraised homes where the borrower is putting actual cash behind the law. Uh, and so the incentive structure is very different and the underwriting is much more pristine uh, than it used to be. Uh, Brett, you want to take the macro question? Yeah, um, you know, on a macro front, look, you know, rates have been rising, it's been inflationary. Um, I think this is a different inflationary climate that we've had in the past. 
But I think, you know, economists like regulators don't usually take, they like to look at history. They don't like to go out and really take a proactive stance that something could be different or something should be done in a different way. And I will say the only person who I'd say doesn't do that is Zervos, the economist at Jeffries. Uh, that being said, you know, this is not 1974 when they talk about, you know, the inflation times during that time. Um, but, you know, look, we've had rates rise. We were at unprecedented low. If you look at a percentage basis, it's been a very high rise in rates. We're also going into an election cycle where it's going to be very important to make sure that, you know, times and perception is good. So I'm kind of just Luke lukewarm on, on, you know, I don't think we're going to go into some massive recession. Um, I think we, there, we have too many things that are saying that we shouldn't. And uh, from that standpoint, we obviously deal a lot with banks and we, banks have had issues. You know, I was in an investor meeting and somebody was saying, well, how could the regulators, you know, have missed the fact that technology has become such a, you know, better, bigger influence in the way people can withdraw money. I'm like, you really think a regulator is going to go in and make that stand and, and discuss that? But with that being said, you know, we need a banking system and we need a stable banking system. And I think we've done a lot to kind of fix that, you know, and just following banks since the Great Recession. We've seen they've done a lot to make sure banks are more conservative. Banks are more conservative than they've ever been. Does that mean that you're not going to have Silicon Valley type banks that kind of stray off the ranch? Sure, you are. You are. But, you know, I think we do have a good banking system. But right now, it's a very conservative banking system. That's why you see so much private credit money being raised. So, you know, I'm like I said, I'm sort of, you know, not too hot, not too cold on, on where the macro uh, world is. Let, let, let me let me reframe my question. Do you find yourself rooting for chaos? How about that? Well, it's funny you ask that because I will tell you, yes, but for a different reason. So I am an investor in the Premier Lacrosse League. It is my favorite thing. And I have a team, which is my favorite team. And their name is Chaos. Sam, talk about tennis. Their name talk is about Chaos. Tennis. And, you know, the two brothers who founded the league didn't like the fact that I talked to the coach every week and I wear Chaos jerseys to the game. But that's my squad. And maybe one day I'll own that squad. Do I root for Chaos? I do. <laughs> okay. I do. I, by nature. Just not in the by, market by, No, by nature, you know, I want things to be inefficient. We work with an asset class that is still inefficient. So we can find inefficiencies at all time. And, and I know people like to talk about that, but if you look at the evolution of markets, many markets have become very, very efficient and there really isn't much to go on anymore. I mean, you just look at the government market and you look at high yield market, the spreads have been taken out of that. Because we have three different elements in it, there are inefficiencies. Do I want another COVID situation coming? No, that was very scary. That was really scary. And that was, you know, just the, the velocity of that market. Do I think we're going to see another blow up like we saw in 08? There's nothing pointing to it because the leverage in that system happened with the banks and we had problems in the banking system, which is something you can't. Do I root for chaos? Yeah, I do. I do root for chaos. But we can find opportunities without chaos. And, and Noel, if I could add something to that, when Brett says lukewarm, that is the kind of environment that Kildine historically has flourished, right? And I'll tell you why. Because a lukewarm environment means that half the market believes it's going up and half the market believes it's going down. And there's differing opinions. And in a differing opinion environment, structured credit is chaotic. Structured credit 
has inefficiencies built in. Uh, and like specifically now, we find a lot of very pristine credit environment, uh, uh, sorry, pristine credit securities that are very risk immune, but still offer an asymmetric return profile. And unlike you know, 20, the past decade where rates were at zero and in an asymmetric profile, your worst case returns could have been uh, very little positive or slightly negative, your return profile on a worst case basis is still positive on some of these securities. And, and you know, the positive being pretty healthy, high single digits. And so in a high rate environment where there is a differing opinion is an environment where Hildeen has historically flourished in. Uh, unlike total distress or a, a completely bull market, because that's where everybody's going the same direction. Yeah, just to add yeah. one other thing is, in the world of finance, there's very little innovation, there's very little creativity. In the world of structured products, there's zero outside of our firm, I would say. I mean, we look at and we have done innovative things. We have done innovative things where we look at both the asset and liability side of the capital structure and try to find that value. And many times we're educating someone at a, at a bank and showing that to them, and then they go out and bring that to us. If you look at some of the things we've done with call features in the trust preferred market, I mean, that's innovation, which now we've got huge optionality. I'm not saying zero. There are some other people out there. But, but most people look at structured products in a purely simplistic way. When it's a simplistic way, it's like, here's a default scenario. What is my return? That's my one option. And they look at things like, what is the underlying value of the assets? Well, when loans sell off two points and you're 10 times levered, should that equity piece go down 20 points? No, it shouldn't go down that much at all. But we can find opportunities from that. And that's not chaotic. That just happens frequently. Yeah, I guess, I mean, and that's sort of an interesting thing about the market that you guys highlight in terms of it's sort of a chronic inefficiency. And I guess, you know, maybe thinking through that a little bit, uh, you know, one of the things, you know, for the markets that I covered, one of the things that surprised me, obviously, over the last handful of years is, you know, the increased trade automation. IG doesn't surprise me much. The penetration into the high yield space does surprise me a little bit. And we're starting to see it in munis, but I'm, I'm suspecting that uh, just given the nature of the structured product market, that that's probably well behind, that it, maybe it's a little bit more complicated in terms of just algorithmically trading through some of those assets. Is that a fair statement? Uh, yes and no. I mean, clearly we are behind. The barrier for entry of technology is definitely higher given the complexity, uh, but it is here, uh, especially for the IG parts of the structured credit market. Uh, you know, we see automated trading systems getting built for CLOs, for Resi, for ABS across the board. And uh, adoption has been what's lacking, I would say, but it's coming, right? Uh, and and candidly, it's needed. Uh, the markets have grown tremendously. The uh, volumes that are being traded are really high. And the, the dealer community is as thinly staffed as it's ever been during my career. So having automated systems to be able to get liquidity and trade bonds uh, is uh, is important uh, and it will come. And it's, I would say it's already here. But having said that, that doesn't change, that 
has clearly taken some of the trading inefficiencies away on some parts of the market. Uh, but the more esoteric parts of the capital structure, lower down equity, resids, uh, even the junior mess portions of the capital structure, uh, thinking innovatively about uh, liabilities, etc. The inefficiencies across those uh, those products still remain, and that is going to be really hard to automate in my opinion. Yeah, and, and I think you know we talked about it before. You know, you may automate all these different systems, but they're still a tool. And as long as you look at them as a tool, it's it's a difference between when I started, I was using a typewriter, and now I'm using a computer. You know, it's it's still doing the same thing, but one is way more efficient. You brought up munis before. Munis is always a market that really fascinates me. It's one which I haven't really gotten into, but munis are small and unique in their own way. Just as like every CLO is small and unique in its own way. It may be a $500 million structure, but so much of it is the seniors, which don't really trade. So because you're dealing with these unique structures that are small and have some complexity and differentiation, that's where there's always this, this opportunity. I think with munis a lot of the time is, is that they're coming from a retail product, so you can have massive swings and find things. But I've always said that you know structured product traders and muni traders, you know, are very similar in the way that they approach them. Well, my muni analyst will be thrilled to hear that. He'll feel a lot more sophisticated, I think, uh, at the end of the day. So I know Sam's chomping at the bit, but Deshaun, I do have just sort of one more uh, for you, and it's sort of talking about some of the partnerships uh, or some of the the diversification that you've done, like with the reinsurance arm with Ludlow Re. Uh, and then maybe walking me through uh, the non-QEM uh, business with cross-country, sort of A, why do that, right? Uh, and then uh, I guess B, sort of what's, what's uh, you know, what do you see as the benefits uh, for Hildeen as a firm? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so look, we're always looking for um, various ways to find value for our LPs, not dissimilar from any other asset manager I would, I would imagine. Uh, but as I said before, it's both on the asset side and what we're investing in, but also on the liability side, right? And historically, Hildeen has been averse to using repo as a means to finance our investments in the fund uh, for various reasons. Uh, we've used some of it, uh, but we've never been avid users of repo. Uh, we just don't like the fact of the market market volatility in some of the products that we traffic in. They can be volatile, and uh, you know, repo forces you to be become forced sellers uh, at times when you definitely don't want to be forced sellers. Uh, and in fact, you want to be liquidity providers. So our thesis has always been: we want to show strength and be liquidity providers to a distressed market. Uh, and so we've always tried to look for financing. Uh, solutions that help us achieve that. That may be longer term repo, that may be securitizations, uh, and then finally, uh, you know, a reinsurance company. Uh, so we recently incubated uh, a reinsurance company into one of our funds. Uh, the idea behind that was simply to initially finance uh, an asset class that we feel fits really well from an asset liability perspective against uh, a longer uh, duration fixed index annuity. Um, and that's uh, Trust Preferred Securities or CDOs of Trust Preferred Securities. Uh, these are instruments, these are legacy instruments, and when I say legacy, they were originated prior to 2008. 
they were issued as 30-year pieces of paper. So there's still life left in them, 10 to 12 years of life left in them. So that's the duration of the asset that fits really well against the annuity, which is about 10 years in life. Uh, and most importantly, uh, they are misunderstood. These are highly delevered securities that can withstand today a lot of stress. So from a credit perspective, they are investment rate, even though the rating agency sometimes will not tell you that. Uh, but they are investment grade, but they still offer a very attractive high yielding return. So, you know, that's why we started Ludlow. And as the market over the last 18 months has developed, if you think about it, the rate curve today is downward sloping, it's inverted. But the risk premium curve is still upward sloping. Two year risk premium is still tighter than a seven year risk premium. Right? And so when we are sourcing liabilities that are 10 years long, and that is hinged to the money market, uh, to the money markets, but then we are pairing them with assets in the credit markets, which are still upward sloping, that net interest margin that you can generate today is more attractive than it's ever been. And so that was the uh, aha moment for Brett and I when we decided, okay, this is not just going to be a financing trade for uh, CDOs that we own with a new fund, but it's actually uh, a scalable product that we can build and take advantage of this uh, historical net interest margin that you can generate uh, on an annuity balance sheet with structured products. Um, and look, you know, happy to answer questions on that, obviously, but you asked about other JVs we've done. We're trying to be solution providers and creative in this market, right? So what that brings is, Hildeen was a CLO manager back in the day. We decided that business of asset aggregation was not necessarily for us, and we sold that business back in 2015. But CLO management has become an asset class by themselves, right? A CLO manager gets traded so often these days. And there's a lot of them in the market. And so we've created this uh, idea of trying to finance some of these CLO managers by lending them capital to launch some deals, by lending them know-how uh, of how best to manage these deals and make them leaders in the market. And in return, not just we don't just create good CLO equity risk for ourselves, but we also own a piece of the manager on a go forward. And uh, our investors benefit because of, for both those reasons. They now own an equity that we created with a JV partner, but then also they benefit from the growth of their platform. And so, you know, we are always looking for investments that, yes, they achieve a specific purpose and reason, but then you have this additional option on top that investors can benefit off of. So, so getting to, uh, in terms of, for you guys, you know, entering these positions, uh, I think we were talking the other day and you, you guys mentioned your more secondary market is where you guys operate. Like, what do you guys see as the big advantage there? And, you know, where are the certain situations where you might uh, do a deal yourself on, on your guys' end? Yes, and I wouldn't say we are secondary market specialists. We are definitely active in the secondary market, right? Like, but I think of, you know, any credit that's ever originated in our minds, we talk about this often here, has a 
has a life cycle. Once the credit is originated, it has to be financed. And either it's financed on a bank balance sheet, on an insurance company balance sheet, or it's financed in the shadow banking system using securitization. Uh, so uh, in times of distress uh, and volatility, secondary markets are a great place to find value. As Brett said, uh, the Turkish bazaar, right? That's when the whole, that, that whole dodge comes in where you're like, okay, like, let's go to the bazaar and find the best value proposition you can find. But then there is benign times where you try to originate credit and you use the securitization market to finance yourself. Uh, and that, that you know you asked before, our relationship with cross-country mortgage. Uh, we like the housing market today. Uh, we think cross-country is a very unique animal. They are the largest non-bank-owned retail mortgage shop in the country. Uh, when I say retail, they have branches across the 50 states. They have, have brokers in-house. Uh, and so we have a relationship with them where we buy uh, all their non-QM production. Uh, and it's done to our credit standards and our rate sheet, so we control the credit quality. They use their sales force to originate and get market share away from competitors. And we have a, a JV securitization shelf uh, where uh, we keep the risk in-house. Uh, and that, Sam, to your point earlier, is an example of we're not active in the secondary market there. We're originating loans, we're originating the credit that I talked about, and using the securitization engine to finance it. And we think that risk-adjusted uh, return on the receipt that we create in that securitization is very, very attractive. Yeah, I, I think to touch on one aspect there is, is, you know, when we look at what we're doing in non-QM mortgages and what we're doing in multifamily, we have a competitive advantage there. Because we have a pipeline from cross-country, that gives us a distinct advantage because everybody else who wants to be in the non-QM market has to go to the market and either originate, or which can be very expensive, or they have to buy in the secondary market, which can be very inefficient and very expensive. And with Ludlow Re, a lot of people say, you know, I'd like to get into the reinsurance business. We had two very compelling things that allowed us to do it. One was because we invested in a insurance company, they're giving us about $4 billion of forward flow. So we're able to jumpstart this and get the reinsurance contracts. But then we also had assets, which are the perfect fit. And that gives us a competitive advantage. And we'd like to enter into new opportunities. And I say that on a large scale, when we feel we have a competitive advantage. And that can either be through information, like with Trust Preferreds. That could be over buying TARP because we understood it and there weren't a lot of people that were showing up. Or it could be like what we're doing right now. But you know, just entering into a market to enter into it is not something that, you know, we, we, we do rarely. Gotcha. And then, I mean, I guess in terms of that competitive landscape, I'm, I'm curious, Brett, like, especially for you having been, you know, with Hilding the entire time that, that it's been established, what have you seen in terms of, you know, some of these bigger firms maybe trying to break into this market? It's obviously a lot more niche with what you guys cover. How have you seen, you know, that competitive landscape grow over, you know, the past decade or so? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of folks who, you know, are in the structured products market because, you know, they have large balance sheets and this is a good asset class for them. Um, you know, who are those? Those are your themes, your Global Atlantics, your PIMCOs of the world. Um, they're gatherers. They're going out and trying to gather as many assets. We always look at ourselves as hunters. We limit the size of how big we can be. 
And even in the reinsurance space, where we know that there's a law of diminishing returns. There's a law of diminishing returns because there's only so many opportunities that are out there. So we look at the reinsurance space as this is a great investment. This is a great way for us to get great financing on assets that we believe in. And we are, when I say we, the people at Hildeen are very large investors in this product. So as opposed to going out and trying to get as big as you possibly can, you know, I look at ourselves as being different because we've always limited scale. We've always limited scale and found good opportunities, but understand that, you know, it can only be so big. Yeah. And I mean, sticking with that topic of scale, like what is your thought process around that? Like, are you seeing that maybe there could be potential areas where you guys might, you know, push into if the opportunity were to arise or do you kind of see it as being more a little bit more of like, I guess, fluid in a way um, with, with how you guys are scaling up? Um, I, I think that the mortgage product and the multifamily will be a constant flow if, if the pace stays and it'll be one where we can get significant growth and we have kind of good vision into what that'll be. It'll, it'll vary a little bit. I think where we see a lot of growth that's happening is, is you know, we believe that you know, within five years, we could have a 10 to $15 billion reinsurance company and maybe even an originator. And that's a great platform, especially if you really understand, you know, both the asset side and the liability side. Now, fixed index annuities are much more simplistic than other types of insurance. And it's really more of a, an arbitrage, when you say a tax arbitrage on investing in fixed income. And that's why they're issued as insurance. But, you know, if we weren't structures, if we weren't people who dealt with structured products, but more importantly, had structured them, I think we would have struggled a lot in trying to really understand and thoroughly comprehend how this reinsurance product works. I think we're way up to speed on it. We get it. We understand the risks. To me, as a, well, you know, I call myself a structured products geek, you know, this is one of the coolest things I've ever encountered because if a structured product like a CLO and a trust preferred is a three-dimensional product, this is like a five-dimensional product. And yes, we've had to learn a lot and build infrastructure, but this is where having one P&L and bringing in every aspect of the firm, whether it's operations, legal, tax, structuring, investments, everybody's involved with this because this is the vehicle for us to really, really get the best financing we can on assets we really like. So I want to stay mindful of time here. Uh, a lot of great content. I think I'm going to have to probably re-listen to this a couple of times so I can digest everything that's been said. But I, I guess, you know, one of the things when we're, we're fortunate to have, uh, you know, founders on and that sort of thing, uh, you know, one of the things I'm always very curious is in terms of culture, right? And you hit on it a little bit at the very beginning here, but I guess curious, uh, you know, Brett, certainly from your perspective, but Deshaun, also from yours, you know, what is what is the Hildeen culture? You know, what is it that sort of sets you apart in terms of, you know, what you're trying to achieve? I think Brett and I see the same way, and it's his philosophy that I've kind of adopted. Uh, I mean, one we touched on before, uh, we are different in the sense that we are one BNL. Uh, on Wall Street, that's hard to find. On especially on uh, you know the investment landscape, it's hard to find. Right? Like generally, you hire a portfolio manager, you allocate him certain capital, and you split uh, the ups. Uh, 
having one PNL uh, allows us to uh, risk manage, uh, allows us to stay nimble. Uh, but uh, from a scalability perspective, I would imagine it's a little bit prohibitive, which actually works fine for us. It, it, and it works fine for our investors because it focuses our attention on producing alpha versus simply growing for the sake of growing. But finding that mindset uh, in talent out there is always challenging. Um, and then uh, lastly, we try to uh, align our interests with investors. Uh, we uh, back-end a lot of our incentive fees, uh, and we stay invested and at risk alongside our investors. We uh, invest a lot of our personal capital into funds that we uh, bring to market, uh, and our actually internal capital across our funds is one of the uh, is one of the largest investors uh, across the products that we offer. Uh, and I think both of those status is apart from a culture perspective uh, and are good and both uh, end up being good uh, risk management tools as well uh, uh, from my seat. Uh, anything to add to that, Brett, or is that about cover it? No, th that covered it very well. I, I think it's hard to find people who really, you know, are going to always play nice and are not territorial. I mean, Wall Street finance is a very territorial kind of like Game of Thrones. And I'm trying to I'm trying to find a place where, listen, we all got to work together to the common goal. And look, we had people who came in and didn't fit that. Sure, we had, but uh, you know, we we look to everyone sees the long game here. That's great. So, with that, I think uh, first and foremost, uh, we'll keep our listeners apprised of when the tennis showdown between uh, Deshaun and Sam is going to take place. I think that'll be the first thing to put in the camera. We'll live like stream to, that one. Can we can we maybe make us a charity event? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we definitely can. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, with that, Brett Deshant, on, on behalf of Sam and myself, certainly appreciate you taking the time to join us. Uh, and to all of our listeners, thanks, of course, for tuning in. And we hope you enjoyed our conversation with Hildeen Capital Management on this episode of Credit Crunch. 